throughout uh, human history, there have been many significant speeches, significant statements made. Some more significant than others, some more meaningful than others. Uh, I, I think of one in particular that required no words, which was in the Alamo when, when threatened um, and told to surrender. Uh, Colonel William Barrett Travis, rather than responding, simply answered with a cannon shot. Loud and clear communication, significant, particularly if you grew up in Texas, you know that story, you love that story, but, but in its kind of circulation, it, it's somewhat limited. Outside of Texas history classes, we, we don't talk about that much. There's tons of great quotes from great men. John F. Kennedy, ask not what your country can do for you, but for what you can do for your country. Significant. Very few people on the other side of the world have heard it. General George Patton said a lot of great things that we just can't repeat here. And yet, unless you're a history buff, you don't know them. A lot of great men have said a lot of amazing things, a lot of significant things, but all of them very limited in scope. As significant as they might have been, for many of us, they have kind of fallen off the pages of history into the abyss. But there's a particular word, really one word, said by one man on one day that rings across not just all of human history, but caused a cosmic shift throughout the entire created world. One word. When we think of the magnitude of that, it's quite striking. Because this one word wasn't just said by some man, it was said by the most important figure in all of human history. Recently I saw Time Magazine's uh, 100 Most Influential People. And they do one every year, and the last year they did a list of, of the 100 most influential people of all of human history. In no particular order, and there was a list of some significant people. But really none more significant than Jesus. When you think about the weight and the expansive view of the words and life of Jesus and how they've affected human history, there's nothing that compares to him. Even today, when we got up, knowing what day it was in 2013, we pay homage to Jesus. Because we mark time by the day or estimated time of his birth. And so to say that it's 2013 is to say 2013 A.D., Anno Domini, the year of our Lord. That we mark time accordingly. Now, if you go to the museums, you'll find something. They've changed it. They don't say B.C. and A.D. anymore. It's no longer before Christ and Anno Domini. You know what it is now? It's common before Common Era, B.C.E., and Common Era. And I remember being at the, the museum recently and, and someone asking one of the attendants, what, what is B.C.E. and what is C.E.? What does that mean? And she said, well, because not everyone's a Christian. We don't feel that it's really reasonable to kind of count time according to Jesus' birth. And of course, the immediate question that comes to mind, well, okay, well, why did we stop with the B.C.E. and begin with the C.E.? What was the demarcation point between before common era and common era? And you know surprisingly what it is? The birth of Jesus. Even in all of our efforts to kind of edge him out of things, we pay homage to him. 
Because we didn't pick another date. You could have picked the, the birth of Caesar Augustus. He was a significant guy in Western culture. But the birth of Jesus, the most significant man in all of history. The book, the Bible that records his story is the most widely translated book in all of the world. It's the best-selling book, most published book. In fact, it's the only book in all of the world that entire people groups that were only oral in tradition have actually developed written languages and learned to read simply to have access to. Imagine that. A people who developed a written language so they could learn to read the story of Jesus. No other book has ever had that kind of following. No other book, no other story, no other man has ever evoked that kind of passion. And so these words, this word that Jesus proclaims, the very last words that come out of his mouth, I believe to be the most significant word in all of human history. In John chapter 19, you'll find that Jesus is on the cross. Leading up to his death on the cross, he has been betrayed by a friend, falsely arrested. People have borne false witness against him, lied in open court in order to convict him of something he'd never done. The crowds that once followed him have turned on him. He's alone. His disciples have fled. Peter, one of his best friends, has denied even knowing him. He's been beaten brutally. He's been mocked, spat upon. He's had a crown of thorns pressed into his head. And he's had a heavy, rugged beam laid upon his back. And so we pick up the story there. In chapter 19 of John. The end of verse 16. It says, so they took Jesus. And we, he went out. Bearing his own cross. To the place called the place of the skull. Which in Aramaic is called Golgotha. And there they crucified him. With two others. One on either side. And Jesus between them. And there he's hung on the cross. And for several hours. The ridicule continues. His body begins to shut down. He's dehydrated. Beaten to ribbons. And the end is near. And in verse 28, the scriptures recount the end of Jesus' life for us. After this, Jesus, knowing that all was now finished, said, to fulfill the scripture, I thirst. And a jar of sour wine stood there. So they put a sponge of the sour wine on a hyssop branch and held it up to his mouth. When Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, it is finished. He bowed his head and gave up his spirit. Now we said this was really the most famous and most significant and most influential word in all of human history. Not so much because it has influenced humanity, which it has in ways we'll never understand, but because of the influence that it held in heaven. Because when Jesus is on the verge of death, he utters really what is in, in Greek, one word. For us, it is finished. It's Three words. In the Greek language, the original text, there's one word that Jesus says, and it's the word tetelestai. It is finished. It's done. The people who study 
The Greek language tells us that this is an accounting term. That it's used to describe a debt being completed or fulfilled. Carrying with it the weight of the concept of something being paid in full or in entirety. It's finished. Other translations will say it is accomplished. Jesus completed the work. And so the question that we've got to wrestle with is exactly what was finished? What was accomplished that day? What's going on here when Jesus utters these words? Earlier on in John, the story and mission of Jesus is explained very briefly in verses that if you grew up in church, you know by heart. In John chapter 3, verse 16, that for God so sent His only begotten Son, that whoever believes in Him would not perish but have eternal life. And verse 17 tells us, but God did not send His Son into the world to condemn the world, but that through Him He might save the world. The mission of Jesus was to be sent, to be, to be given as a gift so that sinful men, sinful women would be brought near to God and be forgiven. That those who believe might not perish but have eternal life. And then the scripture tells us that God did not send his son into the world to condemn it, but through him to save it. You see, nothing was required of God to condemn the world. The, the world in its entirety, all of us stood under his condemnation. He needed to take no action To condemn us. We stood condemned. And yet he sends his only son to die. So that we could be redeemed. Prior to that moment. Prior to Jesus death. And proclamation that the work is finished. I want you to understand. The gravity of what the scripture says to be true of all of us. If that moment doesn't happen. If those words are not uttered. The Bible says we desperately need a Savior. In Colossians 1.21, the Scriptures say we are distant and alienated from God. That we are in fact controlled by our evil desires. Romans chapter 5, verse 12 says that we stand under God's condemnation, awaiting our death penalty because of our sin. John chapter 8, 30, verse 34 and 2 Timothy 2.26 say that we are enslaved to our sin and slaves of the devil. 2 Corinthians chapter 4 says we are blinded to all spiritual truth. And Ephesians 2 says we are dead in our sin and objects of God's wrath. Jesus in Mark chapter 9 says that because of that, we are destined for the unquenchable fires of hell. In Luke 16, Jesus says it's a place of eternal and conscious torment and revelation 14 depicts hell and says the smoke of their torment goes up forever and ever and they have no rest day or night so i want you to understand the fate of humanity the fate of all of us not just from a cosmic sense not just in this general sense but your fate if jesus doesn't endure the cross and if he doesn't complete the work Because that is true of us and we were deserving of the wrath of God. Jesus walks to the cross, beaten and battered, and He takes upon us, as Isaiah 53 says, the weight, the crushing weight of all of our iniquity. All of our sin, all of the punishment for it was laid upon Him. So not just the physical suffering of the cross, but the full weight of the righteous wrath of God for all the sins of humanity was poured out on Him. 
And some of us have objections to that. We struggle with that concept that God would be angry at our sin. We we like to think of God as this kind, loving grandfather who tells you stories and gives you Hershey's kisses and, and that's about the end of the road. But God's much more than that. He's the sovereign ruler of the universe. And He is holy and perfect and completely separate and distinct and unable to even be near the sin of humanity. Not without being it being covered. And so God looks at that and looks at our state and a desire to redeem us, He sends His only Son. Who absorbs the weight and the rush of the wrath of God. For all of our wickedness. None of us is good. Isaiah 53 told us that every one of us, just like sheep, we've scattered and turned away and we've rebelled against God. And we're deserving of judgment, but in His grace, He's poured it out on His Son. So in the midst of that reality, Jesus hangs on the cross, enduring the pain that we deserve so that those who believe in Him might escape the wrath that is to come. That this reality described of us outside of Christ might not be the case for us, but we would be welcomed into the family of God and in His presence with eternal joy with Jesus. And so He endures it. And in the midst of that suffering, as it finishes... As his death is is near, Jesus, knowing that it is coming, cries out, it is finished. It's finished. The wrath of God for the sins of humanity is finished because it's been poured out on his son. The judgment that we deserve, it's it's finished. It's done. And Jesus has accomplished it and Jesus has paid the penalty in full. In the book of 1 John, the apostle gives us three particular things that are finished at that moment. Three things that, that are powerful and important for us to understand. The first is the penalty for sin over those who would believe. In 1 John chapter 2, verse 2, the Scriptures tell us, speaking of Jesus, that He is the propitiation or the atonement for our sins, and not only ours, but also the sins of the whole world. That the punishment that we deserve was poured out on Him. Not just for us, but for those of the whole world. And what the Bible is saying here is not that no one has to deal with the reality of hell. The Bible's clear that faith in Jesus is required. John 3.16 told us that. What the Bible is saying is that Jesus is the only Savior. There is no other way to have your sins forgiven, to have your sins paid for outside of Christ. He is the only Savior of the whole world. They lived in a world where people had little regional idols and gods that they worshipped. So you go into one town and they might worship this god. And you go into the next town and they might worship this god or goddess. And the Bible's telling us, no, that he's not some small local god over Jerusalem. He is the only god and savior of all creation. But he absorbs for us the penalty. And it's finished. Jonathan Edwards, the the great preacher from the 1700s, 
It said that you should view the wrath of God at this moment as this large dam that is holding back water and the, the floodwaters just continue to come and continue to come. And finally, in an act of righteous judgment, God removes what is sustaining the floodwaters of His wrath. And then the torrents just go rushing towards humanity. And at that moment on the cross, Jesus stands in and takes it all. Every bit of it. So that those who would, who would seek refuge in Him would be safe from the coming judgment for their sin. That those who would find solace and faith in Him would be saved. So the penalty for sin for those who would trust in Jesus is finished. It's paid for. It's completed at that moment. But not only the penalty, God's promise is better than that. Also the power over sin for those who would believe has been defeated. Look at 1 John again, chapter 1, verse 7. Scriptures say, but if we walk in the light as He is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus, of his, Jesus His Son cleanses us from all sin. And I want you to think about this. The Bible depicts sin as this, this tainting, kind of nasty co- covering on us. And that the work of Jesus and by His blood, it's begun to be taken away from us as we're cleansed. So that, yes, we're saved, but we still carry around this nature and these sinful desires. And that the blood of Jesus is instrumental over time in continually taking those things from us. Not only taking away the penalty, but removing the sin from us so that it has no hold on us. And we experience that progressively in this life and at His return, we'll experience it perfectly. And finally, also in 1 John chapter 1, verse 7, the shame of our sin is taken away as well. Did you notice what He said? He said He cleansed us. Not only its penalty taken from us, not only its power removed from us, but its very presence on our consciences. That all of us outside of Christ have, have things in life that we regret, that we would take back, that we would do over. And for some of us, the shame is so great that it's debilitating. And what Jesus offers here is, is to be cleansed, to be clean. Not just to be forgiven, but to have that removed from you. That's why the Bible uses language to describe Jesus' work in us as giving us a new life and a new nature. The old person is dead. And we've been washed clean. And Jesus declares to all of heaven and earth and everything under the earth that the power, penalty, and presence of sin is finished. It's finished. And I said this is important, not just because of its impact on humanity, but because when Jesus says it is finished, the Father affirms it. So that now, through the blood of Jesus, if we've trusted in Him, we, He sees us as righteous, holy, and beloved. And that all of that judgment that God rightly could have laid on us that we saw outside of Christ is no longer our reality, but we are now dearly loved sons and daughters. It's finished. 
I think one of the most significant things that I've learned about this word to telestai is, is the phrase. The root word is this, this verb teleo, which means to complete. Just to complete. But you add some other stuff because it takes on different tenses. And, and to be honest, Greek has far more than we have in English. Which is helpful. When we begin to translate and try to understand what this word means. The word to telestai is what in, in grammar we call the perfect tense. Which carries this meaning to it. Is that it's an event that happened once, but that its effects are forever. So uh, the event occurred once when Jesus died once and for all for our sin, but, but its lasting impact is unquestioned throughout eternity. It's perfectly, entirely completed for all ages. There's nothing that could happen that would question the completion of that work. It's done. Contrast that to standard things that we go through in life. Like today I mowed my lawn and and I could have said at the end it's finished. But I couldn't have said that in the perfect tense. Because if it rains or I water it, it, it's going to need it again. Over and over. But Jesus says this death of the righteous for the unrighteous. Once for all is all that is needed. To break the power of Satan, sin, and death. It's all that's needed. It's finished. And so we gather tonight to remember what he did for us. To gather for communion, a time where we get to repent of our sin again. We get to seek God's mercy again. Not because he's removed it. But because it's ever present. We don't gather to take these elements like we will in a moment. Because we believe that in some way uh, they're necessary for us to be saved. Or, or that Jesus' work is in some way incomplete if we don't kind of add something else to it. We gather instead to celebrate that it is complete. And to remember the great length that our Savior went to to ensure our salvation. And so we remember that on the night that Jesus was betrayed, he took the bread and he blessed it and he broke it. And he said, this is my body, which is broken for you. And then after dinner, he took the cup. And in the same way, he blessed it. He said, this is the cup of the new covenant, which is poured out in my blood for the forgiveness of sins. And as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, do this in remembrance of me. Notice that what Jesus tells us about forgiveness is, is related to what he is going to do, not what we can do. His body is going to be broken for us. His blood will be shed to cleanse us. He will accomplish this. What he's asked us to do is to trust him and to remember over and over again what he's done. In the book of 1 Corinthians, the Apostle Paul addresses this moment in the life of the church. And he says it with these words. For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you. But the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took the bread. 
When he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he also took the cup after supper, saying, This is the cup, is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself and so eat the bread and drink the cup. So that's the invitation that we have. To remember what Jesus has done for us. And that by faith we partake in his death. And that his blood is credited towards us and it washes us clean. That his payment for sin has been placed on our account. Not because we're good, but in spite of the fact that we run from him and turn from him at every moment. He's done this for us. And if we simply trust him. He says it's finished. The judgment of God for our sin is finished. Sin's power over us is finished. The shame that we carry around because of our sin and the things. It's finished. Because of what he's done. And I don't know about you. But I need to be reminded of that. And in God's grace to us, he gave us this time. I want to ask those who be helping to come forward. We're doing a little different tonight, so we have a few kind of basic instructions for you. Um, we're going to have some people stationed here. Um, each of them will have a, a, a loaf of bread and a cup of the juice. What we'd ask you to do is to come forward and to... Simply tear off a piece of the bread and dip it in the cup and then return to your seat. The easiest way to do this is just to come by row. So if you're uh, on an aisle, just come on the front, just come forward. Um, Exit to the outside and then return towards the middle. And you can sit, you can pray. There'll be some music playing. You can sing along with it if you like. And have this time with the Lord. So we'd ask you to come forward by aisle here in a moment. To go out on the outside and then come back on the end. And when the row in front of you is gone, then you just get up and, and, and lead your group as well. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for this bread that represents your body. Lord, we thank you for this cup that represents your blood. We thank you not only that your son died for us, paying for our sin, drawing us near and completing the work of redemption, but also that you and your goodness to us have have given us this command as a reminder to remember how how good you are to us. To remember how much we needed a Savior and the lengths at which you went to save us. And to remember that the work needed to save us was finished by your Son. Lord, I pray that your spirit would move freely in our hearts this this evening. That you would draw us ever closer to you in this time. Lord, we ask you to draw us to repentance. To draw us to reconciliation with others. And reconciliation with you. That we might again enjoy the full joy of our salvation that your son paid for with his own blood.
In Jesus' name, amen.